God, we thank you for your word again. We thank you that you do not leave us unguided. And we thank you that your word not only teaches us how to live, your word also tells us uh, what is going to happen. And your word also gives us comfort and strengthens us and also reminds us how we are to live. So God, we just want to come to your word again today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll be our teacher, uh, speak through our senior pastor, that God, we may hear from you today and know how we are to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. They are staying here. Sorry. The children are staying here, right? I was told. Yes, that's what I was told. Okay. Um, so how's your first week been? The first week of radical discipleship? Not so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to do something difficult yesterday. I had to quote chapter and verse to to some Christians I know and say, this is what the Word of God says. This is how we ought to tackle this program, uh, or, or this problem, sorry. And uh, it was very uncomfortable, but I hope it will turn out well. Because that's all it is, just obedience. Right? God says this. Is there any other better way? Let's just obey. Anyway, today we are on a different topic. Um, let me first of all reveal to you the plan for Revelation. Over the next six weeks, we will be preaching on the seven churches of Revelation in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and we will follow that on two Saturday afternoons on the 18th and 25th of April uh, on the, the other chapters in the book of Revelation, and uh, with a gentleman called Stephen Tan, whom nobody knows. But he's been here once before, and um, he's done a lot of research and study into the book of Revelation, and has an interesting way to uh, present this. So we want to encourage you all to come. Now, Revelation is not a book of the Bible to fear. Fear that, firstly, you cannot understand it, and secondly, that when you understand it, uh, you will fear it even more. It's not a book to, to be avoided before, because it declares itself in the first verse of the first chapter that the purpose of Revelation is to reveal what must soon uh, take place. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants, us, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who then wrote it all down. What's the other purpose of Revelation? To bless those who keep what is written. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is a, a book of mixed genres. Firstly, it is apocalyptic. Actually, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to unveil, or basically just to, to lay bare, to reveal a different dimension, to give us a glimpse into the heavenlies. It is also prophetic. It reveals what is to come. And it is also an epistle, or actually seven epistles to seven uh, churches. Um, Revelation was written by the Apostle John, uh, the one who says the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
And he is actually a major contributor to the New Testament. He wrote one gospel, and you can say he wrote 10 epistles. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then letters to seven uh, churches. Now, there are, there are many ways to, to uh, many views on how to interpret uh, Revelation and the letter to the seven churches. Some would say that most of these events have already happened in the first uh, century. Others say that it hasn't happened at all. In fact, it's going to happen way beyond the 21st uh, century. But for these six weeks, we are approaching these seven letters primarily from a devotional objective. The question we want to ask is, what do these seven letters or epistles teach us personally, and what do they teach us as a local church in PPH? How are we to heed these warnings, and how are we to apply these lessons? So we group these seven churches into the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, which will be preached on the second day of Chinese New Year, of course, is uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, principally because Jesus did not rebuke them for anything. They excelled in good deeds. The bad, Sardis and Laodicea, because Jesus had nothing good to say about these two churches. They were engaging in evil. And then the ugly, Ephesus is one of them, Thyatira and Pergamum, because they were neither here nor there. Some good, some bad, and, and a lot of compromise with uh, the world. Today we look at if Ephesus, and let's read 1 to 7 of chapter 2. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, these seven letters have a very consistent structure. It's almost like filling in a form. Jesus gives His approval to some of the churches, what is good about the church. Then He makes an accusation, some of the bad things about the church. He offers advice to the church how to correct uh, make correction. Then he has an assurance in each of the seven books, he says, to the one who conquers, or in another translation, to him who overcomes this, this, and this. And then finally, an appeal, which is the same for all seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the, the form of the seven letters. Um, so we talk about first the efficient church. The Ephesian church was started during Paul's second missionary journey, around about AD 50, 53, 57, around there. And it was a thriving city, the fourth largest city in, uh, after Rome, after Alexandria, after Syrian Antioch. Fourth largest city, wealthy port city, at a convergence of sea routes, trade routes. 
they had this huge temple, the temple to Artemis. Um, you find that in Acts chapter 19, who was the goddess of fertility. There were temple prostitutes. There was emperor worship also at that time. Now, approval. What did the Lord Jesus approve of in the church of Ephesus? Firstly, their effort. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your toil. In and then about their endurance in verse 2 again, I know your patient endurance. In verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. And then they hate evil and falsehood. Verse 2, you cannot bear with those who, uh, those who falsehood and are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, found themselves to be false. Verse 6, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans which Jesus says he also hate. Now, the church of Ephesus had good works. In another part of the Bible, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So it was a very good thing. The church of Ephesus was well taught. They were able to distinguish good from evil. They tested so-called apostles and were able to discern that these were false apostles. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans is also mentioned in the letter to Pergamon, which uh, uh, Elder Edwin will preach on. Now, exactly who these Nicolaitans uh, were uh, is still a subject of uh, study, but whatever its origins, the Nicolaitans led people into sexual immorality into wickedness. And the letter to Pergamum that uh, Elder Edwin will talk about links it to Balaam's false teaching in the Old Testament, Numbers 22, and it led Israel uh, astray. So it's about sensual sexual temptations leading, leading to immorality. And it's ugly. It's ugly because all this was done in the name of Christian liberty. You're a Christian, you're free to do anything you like. And that's why I, I, we call it ugly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The church of Ephesus was also, also a weathered church in that they have weathered or endured uh, with patience. They bore the name of Christ. But then there was a, a waning. A waning of what? I told you that Paul started the church in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. It was a fantastic time. There were amazing miracles of healing, even the handkerchief and the aprons that the apostles uh, uh, had, and people, when people touch it, they were healed. There was this episode of the seven sons of Sceva who wanted to imitate because it was like so miraculous. They wanted to, to cast out demons, and they themselves were, were beaten by the demons. Uh, there were the, the sorcery scrolls of uh, the temple that they, they burned it, even though they were expensive. There was a huge riot over. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the temple of Artemis because all those people who, who manufactured uh, idols were upset that the Christian faith came along and said that we do not worship idols. So it was a very vibrant uh, church and a vibrant spiritual environment. And then Paul passed it to Timothy, to pastor. You can read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1 also. And the Bible has mostly good things to say about the Ephesian church. 
in the year 53 or 57, you read the book of Ephesians, mostly good things. But by the time John wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus in about AD 90, that's about 30 to 40 years later, about one generation. In one generation, things had deteriorated. In which Jesus would then accuse the church of Ephesus of one, you have forsaken your first love, and two, you have fallen from the heights. Verse, three, uh, verse 4 and verse 6. The Ephesians worked hard for the Lord. They knew their doctrines, but they had forsaken their first love. What does that mean? They might be thinking that I have risen in spiritual stature because of my hard work and my doctrinal correctness. But Jesus says, you have fallen. They hated evil and they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, but Jesus says, you have forgotten how to love. You know how to hate, but you have forgotten how to love. You have become a church of cold orthodoxy. You have become Christian Pharisees. You are in a holy huddle. Instead, you ought to be a healing presence. It's like one of my friends many years ago, he talked about his church. He said, my church, huh? every sermon we criticize other churches because they are doctrinally incorrect and we are correct. But works and spiritual doctrinal purity does not give us that spiritual life. Without love, it leads to spiritual deadness. And Jesus' assurance to them was that if you heed my advice, you will eat of the tree of life and live. Talking about eternal life, to be spiritually alive. So the efficient church worked very hard, and, and this is the word for, for busy. They were very busy. Yeah, this is the word for busy in Chinese. Actually, it is a composite of two root words. Can you see the two root words? If you take away, it's, a, it's composite of love, uh, heart, and death. If you take away the heart, it means death. It's quite an interesting uh, study of the Chinese character. Spiritually, dead. So I wonder what all this work and toil was all about in Ephesus in those days. Maybe they taught Sunday schools week after week faithfully. Maybe they went capping quarter after quarter, four times uh, a day in the efficient houses. Maybe they helped with a big Christian uh, Christmas program year after year, seven years uh, in running. But maybe it was all for prestige or spiritual position or to win the praise of men or just to have a good reputation in the community. Now, in the early to mid 2000s, I used to be asked to write uh, uh, quite a few testimonies for students who have served in our community services centre. So they help out in some programs and say, Pastor, can you write for me a testimony? Which I was very glad too. And also very glad that some of them are still serving, even today, since the mid-2000s. Now, 10 years later. But there are some, I think, who serve and then ask me to write the testimony only to pad up their CVs for application to university and especially to medical school because you need to show the university that you've got a heart, that you're not about just scoring A's in, in exams. And, and a few of them, after they made it to university, never came back. They don't serve anymore. It was self-serving. It was not first love. It was self-love. What is first love? I think the Chinese word is 初恋. First 
love. It's very powerful. First love is very powerful. People climb the highest mountain, they cross the deepest oceans. And that's why I think the Lord Jesus described it as such. First, the love between Jesus and His disciples is characterized as the love between Christ and the bride. He didn't say the love between an old husband and an old wife. He said Christ and the bride. And you and I know that unless we make special effort, this first love between a husband and his bride becomes jaded very quickly. When a husband and wife work hard for the money, they pay the bills, they bring the kids to school, to enrichment tuition classes, to doctors, for dental braces, for parent-teachers association, that delight of first love becomes a duty. And worse, sometimes it becomes a dread. I think for those who are married, you remember the heady days of courtship and, and the early years or the early months of marriage. That's first love. It's pure, it's pristine. I remember... Um, I don't know if you guys still know. Uh, over here, I think mostly will know. What is a phone booth? A phone booth. You put 10 cents in. In those days, it was 10 cents. And it's unlimited. 10 cents, you can talk forever. Which I did. Calling my girlfriend at that time. Downstairs, my mom was at 8th story. She can watch. What's this joker on the phone, at the phone booth, using up 10 cents, and then like talking for over an hour. That was first love. But maybe after a while, it's like when somebody calls you, you say, busy lah, just text me. Huh? Don't call me, I'll call you. And these days, I say that too because not just busy, dementia. Right? You don't text me, huh? I cannot remember. Right? You tell me, go and buy dinner home or collect the laundry, hey, text me. Huh? Otherwise, I will forget. With first love, you would love to, you simply love to communicate with the person you love, with the one you love, with the, either it's a small O or a capital O, the one you love. When your bride or your new wife calls, you drop everything to answer the call. But when you lose your first love, you say, don't call me, I will call you. What about when God calls? We also say, don't call me, I may call you back. But I'm busy working for you. That's why I cannot listen to you and I cannot spend time with you. You know the Cantonese saying, Okay, I got to explain this, right? Before you get married, it's like sugar stuck to the peanut. You know those uh, kacang putih, right? Sugar stuck to the peanut. But after you get married, it's like water and oil. It just sort of separates. It cannot come together. So forsaking your first love doesn't mean you hate. Uh, and, and really, the opposite of love is not hate, right? The opposite of love is indifference. You work hard, but with an indifference because your heart is not in it. It becomes a robotic action. There is no passion. There is no love. First love is also related to first commandment. What is the first commandment? Matthew chapter 22, verse 38 and 39. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first commandment. And then the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That first love is the love of God translated into love of neighbor. You remember when you first believed in Christ, you, you want to tell the whole world. You prayed often, you lost that first love because you see... Uh, 
you, you, you love the loss because you see the big difference that the love of God has made in your life. And you say, I got this. Why can't other people have this? The love of God in my life. Salvation. It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And then things become to get ugly. Churches become ugly when love is not in it. I'm very sorry to raise this example, but I think it speaks of losing our first love. Last Christmas, only last month, we asked for children's gifts, remember? So that we can wrap them and then we can give out uh, as a Christmas gift to the children. What did we get? We got some very broken toys, very old toys. We got some old soft toys that I think before we can give anybody, we need to send for dry cleaning or maybe even disinfection. We got some crayons that were already used. Okay, maybe the announcement from the pulpit is not clear, the bulletin was not clear, maybe the font was too small, the voice was too soft, the pronunciation was too poor. But if this comes across as a rebuke, I hope it comes across as speaking the truth in love and not condemnation. Otherwise, once again, I say it's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But how can? It's like, how can? How can this happen in a church? I think the love is not there. Right? I clear my rubbish, I give it. Let me just raise it as an object lesson. So from appro uh, approval, <coughs> Jesus made the accusation, accusation, you've lost your first love, you have fallen from the heights, and now what advice does the Lord Jesus give? You know, Scripture <coughs> provides the alliteration uh, now, so it's very simple, RRR. Remember, repent, redo. The classic one is uh, Psalm 119. If you go back and look at your Bible, there are 22 alphabets in the, in the Hebrew uh, uh, alphabet, <coughs> and Psalm 119 goes from A to Z. Okay, it's so, it's so fantastic. Anyway, advice from Jesus is very simple. Remember, repent, redo, and all from verse 5. Firstly, remember your first love. Therefore, from where you have fallen. Because God does. God remembers your first love. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, I remember. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land, not soon. God remembers. Can you, when you read this verse in Jeremiah 2, 2 can you feel the love sickness of God? I think God was lovesick. How do we remember? How do we remember the high points of our spiritual life? <coughs> I think, how do we remember the high points of our physical life? We, of our married life? We look back, old letters, journals, right? especially uh, photo albums, right? And I always say, if my house ever catch on fire, photo albums. More important than passport or IC, right? Because those are precious memories. And today is fantastic. Today, one hard disk drive contains everything. Uh, although I have not digitized some of my old photo albums, but I know there's one man here who did it, okay? I think he spent hours. I'm going to talk to Tin Yin. I believe he did that, okay? So all his photos can be in one hard, hard disk drive. <coughs> why are we doing, why are we working, why are we toiling? Like the Ephesians in, in, in the church of Ephesus. 
Is it because loves, God loves us as a bride and that we are simply responding with delight and not duty or dread? So remember, remember is an act of our head, of our minds. This is what Jesus tells us, remember. Secondly, repent. Repent is an act of our heart. The Greek word is metanoia, metamorphosis. You turn away, you turn the other direction. It's an act of the will from the heart. Um, if you visit a prison, those who have been caught for breaking the law, and you ask a, you ask a question, how many of you are sorry? I think almost 100% will say they are sorry. Why they are sorry could be a different matter. Maybe some say, I'm sorry because I cannot caught. I got caught. And so surveys are done about recidivism. Like, how many prison inmates in Singapore will re-offend after five years? Right? You did something wrong, you got put in prison, then you came out of prison. After five years of coming out of prison, how many people will go back into prison again? Do the same thing. That means they've never repented. Right? In Singapore, 40%. Four in ten who, after coming out of prison, will go back to prison within five years. What is the recidivism of the, the lowest recidivism of any country? Norway. Norway, 20%, half of Singapore. Which country has the highest rate of recidivism? America, 76.6%. So you can say that Norwegians are good repenters. And Americans are bad repenters. They don't repent. They go back into the, breaking the law. And 60% of Singapore inmates are good repenters because they turn away from a life of breaking the law or crime. But what if those same surveys were done in church? How many are sorry? Yeah, I'm sorry uh, for, for sins or forsaking our first love. Maybe 100%. But how many will repent? How many will turn away what is the rate of recidivism in PPH? We don't know, okay? But God knows. There is a teaching going around town that real Christians only need to repent once at conversion and ever after again, no need to repent because you are, you are, yeah, you got Holy Spirit in you and you, you will never sin again. I think it's so wrong, okay? Don't have time to get into that today. Remember, repent, and thirdly, redo. Do the works you did at first. Verse 5. I heard a sermon once on this passage that concluded with this application. It said, don't work so hard like the Ephesian church. That's doing. We are human beings. We are not human doing. Again, wrong. No time to get into that. Because verse 5 is so clear. Do the works you did at first. Do first works to get first love. I believe is how we can interpret it. And it's so counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive like the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. It is so counterintuitive, it's like whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The one who saves his life will lose it. It's counterintuitive. Why did the Lord say this? Do the works you did at first. You, in fact, you should be like crawling into a corner to have a spiritual retreat. Get back first love, get back first love, and then do. The Lord Jesus didn't say that. He says, just do what you did at first. And I believe the Bible is very practical because God created us. He knows us. Why did Jesus say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke chapter 12, 
34, Luke 1, 2, 3, 4. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I thought that's like upside down. It's like where your heart is, there's where all you put all your treasure. And I think that treasures are very clear KPI. You know what you have invested in. And if I see where you have invested in, I know your heart. Counterintuitive. It's a lot like counselling a couple whose love has grown cold. What I very often will say is that you remember your first date? You remember the gifts that you used to give to one another? You remember the careful attention that you pay to one another? You remember the practice of all the love languages that you offer to the other? And do it now. Do it now, even though you don't feel like it. It's like there was this couple about to divorce. So the man went to the counsellor and said, I hate my wife. I want to divorce her. And the counsellor said, since you hate your wife so much, I want you to spite her. Okay, you do all these romantic things and loving things that you do for her for three months. End of three months, you serve her the divorce papers suddenly. And then you will inflict the most pain. Right? You know where the story is going, right? After three months, everything changed. Like, I don't want to divorce my wife anymore because when I love her, she loved me back and everything is fine. I don't want to divorce anymore because they did the, the things that they used to do at first. So, what did you do at first that you're not doing now? You could stand for an hour to talk to your girlfriend at a phone booth. You could spend an hour just in God's presence and talking with God and reading His Word. But now, you don't do that anymore. You love to meet God on Sundays and you're always punctual. You come early and in great expectation of a word from the Lord, of meeting fellow Christians who love you, of serving somebody on, on a Sunday. But you don't do that anymore. You love to wake up early because you're in great expectation of spending that time with God, but you don't anymore. You love to share the gospel, tell everybody what you have found, that it is real, that my life has changed, but you don't do so anymore. You love to attend Wednesday prayer meetings, but no more. You used to join a cell group, but no more. You used to go capping, but no more. You cheerfully give $100 when your salary was $1,000. But now that your salary is $10,000, giving $1,000, 10% is so difficult. No more. So you remember with your head, you repent with your heart, and you redo with your hands and feet. You know, so often that when we become a new Christian, we are full of fervor to love God, to know more about God, to share the gospel. And then we become churchified. Churchified. Because this is pastoral care. Feed me. I need to grow as a disciple. Feed me. Where is my pastoral care? How come the pastors don't care for me? Doctrinal correctness. We split to the finest detail what is the meaning of whatever doctrine you want to think about. We become critical. We become judgmental. We forgot how to love. We remember how to work. We remember how to hate. Not political incorrectness, but doctrinal incorrectness. But we forgot how to love. Let me end with a, a personal story that dates back to 1994. Wow, long ago. 1994. 26 years ago, I was married for 12 years already. And I shared this in church. I look back some of the old sermons. On the 22nd of May, 1994. So let me read. 
we, that means me and my wife, we were so absorbed in our family problems that we lost sight of our first love, that which was between a man and wife. It got so bad one day that Angeline even called her boss in Hong Kong to tell him that she may have to give up a job to look after me. One of my complaints, which she related to her boss, was that we cannot even find time to have lunch together. I think the boss thought she was crazy or crazily romantic. He says, hey, I never have lunch with my wife. So Angeline was willing to do the work she did at first, which uh, we have regular lunch together. We still had, we had lunch yesterday. Yesterday was a working day for me. I scoot out to have lunch. Sometimes I just tell the office staff that I have a lunch appointment. Uh, I go out there. They think I go out to counsel someone. But actually, I go out to receive counseling and to receive love. And I heard this characterization just this week. In, I was in KL for four days for a pastor's prayer summit. And this is amazing. It says, you talk about quiet time. Right? Pastors have problems with quiet time, okay? I'm going to tell you that we are normal people. Right? And then this pastor came out and shared. He says, have you made time to be loved by God? I said, wow. We always think of quiet time as, oh, read the Bible, pray, ask God, pray for people, tell God you love Him. But no. Have you made that time in a day to be loved by God? That first love that God gives to us so that we can respond with first love. Okay. So today, I have to end quickly because we have uh, a time of prayer to rededicate ourselves for service. But I just hope the message got across <clears throat> that it's about making time or open up, opening up the avenues for God to love us. And when we receive, when we feel, when we appropriate the love of God, life changes. Right. They say love changes everything. Indeed, it does. So, remember, repent, and redo. And may I also at this time, don't, don't, let's not spiritualize the thing too much. Okay? For those who are husband and wife, remember, repent, and redo. And set your marriage between husband and wife on a new level this year. And then set your spiritual journey with God. Disciple, radical disciple, to loving God on a new journey this year. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word, which is so simple, so clear, so rooted, so radical. If only we would obey and take it literally for what it says. And I pray for each one of our lives now, Lord, that we will remember the heights from which we have fallen, that pure love that that great appreciation for a God who loved us, who sent Jesus to die in our place to recover that first love, to remember we turn away from everything that distracts us from that love and we make a commitment radically to do the works we did at first and then we recover that first love. So thank you, God, for your instruction to us. We want to obey. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.